Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. It's important to understand where our culture comes from, what its roots are, to understand the animating forces in it. It can be extremely confusing to live in that culture and releasing, freeing, if you grasp where it comes from, then it's so much easier to face it. So that is what I at least want to sketch a little bit for you. I'll be brief to leave time for questions. In the Middle Ages and still in the 1200s, there was a young boy, six years old, who was given by his parents to a Franciscan monastery by the name of William, William of Ockham. And William of Ockham turned out to be a very curious sort of theologian. He speculated on particularly the power of God. He was absorbed by the idea of the power of God and attempted to think through, to the very limits, as it were, this power of God. So, for example, he thinks through, could God bring a sinner who is really deep in mortal sin to heaven without changing that person? inwardly, and he says, yes, because God can produce any effect without needing the secondary causes and the preparation for the secondary causes. Another example, could God command us to hate each other and to hate him which then would be the law. And he concluded, yes, because God's will is the law. It establishes what is right and what is not right. So you could see there was a vastly exaggerated emphasis on the freely willed decisions of God's power, a reduction of what was very deep in the Christian tradition, that God is not only will but wisdom. God is goodness itself. It would be absurd to think God could command us to hate him. But this was the road pursued by Arkham. He had a sort of tragic 
and was accused of various heresies, went to the court of the Pope in Avignon to sort out these accusations, was involved in the poverty disputes of the Franciscan order, eventually fled from Avignon to Munich to join the Pope's enemies, lend them the power of his pen, and apparently was never reconciled. He himself didn't have a huge following, but one very important figure who identifies himself as one trained in the mind of William of Arkham, he calls himself an alchemist, is Martin Luther. Um, he admired Arkham vastly early on, and when he broke with scholastic philosophy and theology, it was Arkham that he had in mind. Luther had very little knowledge of Bonaventure, um, of Thomas Aquinas, of Thomas Aquinas indirectly through Gabriel Beale. There's one disastrous effect. Luther attempted to escape from this kind of scholasticism and in a way return to the Gospel of Christ, but retained one key premise, namely one could not make sense of the world, not even of God's action. It did not follow any intelligible wisdom, but was merely a matter of will and power. Now, as soon as you, it, it's quite logical that he thought of our world, of nature, as denuded, naked of all goodness. You can't find goodness in it. The only thing you can rely on is Christ as the Redeemer who, as it were, snatches you from this disaster of the corruption of our nature. Protestantism, of course, has its own history, but what came from, or was, what was in a way prepared both by Arkham and then by Luther, through whom this sort of thinking about the primacy of will and of power really took hold in Europe. That was the moment when modern natural science was developed for the first time, conceived and developed. And one of the most important figures on that score is Francis Bacon, who, as we took the logical consequence, if there is nothing really deeply good in nature, if nature isn't something to be treated with love and reverence, and with an attempt to understand its goodness, to grow in wisdom about it, if all of these things are gone, then 
Nature is simply raw material for human power. Now, for what end? Well, to make the human condition better. But if, if, you, if you look at the actual ends that Bacon talks about, they seem to be the comforts of life, instruments of war, ways of combating pain when you're tortured, changing your appearance so that if you look ugly, you look beautiful, entertainments where you produce fantastical appearances. He also was, I think, the first one who thought about um, submarines. He was a brilliant man. Lord Chancellor of England, although eventually dismissed for corruption as a judge. The Lord Chancellor was the supreme judge. So, often the story is told the origin of, of the scientific revolution lay in people suddenly realizing that the dominant Aristotelian philosophy of nature was out of touch with the phenomena. They didn't look really carefully at what was happening. And so the empiricist impulse was the main one. But in point of fact, Bacon is absolutely explicit. He says, knowledge is supposed to serve power over nature. Knowledge for its own sake, that is, of nature as something beautiful, marvelous, that lifts our mind beyond it, and in that way perfects us, he compares that to going to a prostitute. And he says the right way of relating to women is for comfort and offspring. That she has to be useful. Uh, if you enjoy her, that's immoral. Um, he called the change that he conceived, and it's, it didn't grow on his terrain alone, that movement in a very mysterious way began in several points in Europe simultaneously. He called that the beginning of the masculine age. Here we finally come of age, he says, the Greeks, that's not the age of women, but the age of boys. Boys can talk, but they can't generate. We want to generate technologically, that is, not have children, but uh, produce results, progress, scientific progress. Another very important figure, a little bit later than Bacon, who played a massive role in popularizing this particular understanding of knowledge was Descartes. In one text, Descartes says that instead of pursuing the knowledge characteristic of the schools right now, we should be pursuing a kind of knowledge by which knowing the properties of Earth, the sky, even the stars, we can make use of all of these things 
the way we make use of our workmen, we know exactly what they can do, and so make ourselves masters and possessors of nature. The masters and possessors of nature, that's well put. That was the ambition of the age. It's an ambition for power over nature. Of course, of course, always in the interest of the human race, the good of the human race for progress, but power over nature. Pope Benedict in Space Alvi has a very interesting passage, very deeply perceptive, where he says, if we are ultimately in power, there's no need for any other power. In other words, secularization is built into the very heart of that project as Bacon formulated it. At the same time, as this project of power got going in natural science, there was a partial counter-movement to it, partial counter-movement, uh, but in a way it's also partly a continuation. So if, and this is the result of thinking the goal is power, if the goal is power, what will be the science you choose as the master science. It'll be mathematical mechanics, because already the ancients knew that mechanics is the science to gain power. If there's something difficult to achieve, you turn to mechanics, to levers, pulleys, that kind of thing, and you can achieve it by those means. The ancients knew that. So the new orientation tended to reduce what was objective or considered objective fact in nature to what could be captured by mechanics. So nature is a great mechanism that doesn't contain either good or bad. Mathematics in fact, as a matter of principle, doesn't consider good or bad. That's something Aristotle in the metaphysics already shows with, with great clarity. Now, if there is no objective good or bad in nature, it means that views about good and bad are an imposition of will of somebody else on yours. And therefore, you have to emancipate yourself from that imposition of will by somebody else. So that's in continuity with the scientific tradition. But natural science itself, or the ideal of technological project, uh, progress, raised the specter that human beings would become, as it were, cogs in the machine, simply used for the purposes of progress. 
and the dignity of the person, the rights of the person, etc., would be violated. Well, both of those strands fed into a powerful uh, movement of emancipation. Anything, any view about good or bad, ugly and beautiful, that you receive is somebody else's project that you have to free yourself from. Now you see how eventually male and female, which are not mathematical categories, you can't define them in mathematical terms, must ultimately be somebody's project that is a power interest which you have to uncover, deconstruct, it's now called, recognize as such, and fight against in the interests of your freedom. So, to summarize, two movements at the root of what's happening in our culture. The removal of good and bad from nature, already in Occam, but then strengthened by the mathematical method. In the interest of power over nature, hence partly in reaction against, but partly as a continuation of that development, the movement of emancipation, of seeking freedom from what is imposed on you irrationally to satisfy somebody else's power interests. You see how the whole game is about power, 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 power. That's, that's the, the gold coin of, that, of the realm of our, um, of our culture, even to the point that if, and this came out in William's lecture, even to the point that some people, as it were, think of a woman gaining power as scoring a goal for the winning team, even if the rest of women don't have power, that one of them has power is considered, uh, so much has it become the um, thing desired. That's what you face, that's what I face as a man, that's what you face as women. And it, it surrounds us in many ways. We're, we're like fish swimming in water. A fish is going to be wet on the outside and on the inside. The water gets in and covers all of the fish. Plus, fish tend to be the very last to realize that they're swimming in water. <laughs> For us to look at a fish, my goodness, the thing is in water. We can't breathe. How, how, how can it survive? I'm amazed by it, but if I were a fish, it would be quite natural. <laughs> um, so, 
Don't live under the illusion that that isn't deeply in you. It is, in a, in a thousand ways. Um, okay, that's enough as a few introductory words, but uh, I would be very interested in questions you have for more detailed elaboration or clarification of things. Did that make any sense? <laughs> yes, please. Sure. I'm going to help him keep track of hands. The, 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 the room is clearly small enough for us to hear each other very well. Kind of ingrained in us, right? That we don't realize. Yeah, I can see that. Um, how would you like detox from that? Like, how can you start to see it more? Because I, I imagine you're comparing it with the culture where that isn't the case, right? You know, the, and I don't know how do we change our own, like, a, I don't know, like, way of being and not be. Yeah, the examples that. William Newton mentioned, Mother Teresa especially, reading her book, uh, or the book by Brian Collard Yechuk, Come Be My Light, is, is really an amazing experience. Because there you see somebody who totally falls outside that whole world of glitz and of power with money connected with it. The president of our university, um, Jim Tui, a lawyer, was Mother Teresa's lawyer, and his task was to keep money away from her. Now that's very interesting for a lawyer, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's kind of a paradoxical situation for a lawyer, of all things, to be in. I mean, they're always after money, and, and he had to keep it away from her because she didn't want it. So she didn't want people to collect money for her. Um, some gifts she accepted, but on the whole, she was extremely cautious in relation to money. So reading her journey, also the suffering she went through, it, it's kind of a shock therapy, and, but there has to be also a more um, capillary way of reflecting about what one does in one's own work. What does it serve? And so on. And she doesn't automatically do that for you. So finding like-minded people who have an understanding of what's going on in the culture, who understand the sickness, where it lies, and therefore what the remedy is, the, the, the main remedy being delight in goodness, that is a wisdom that comes from seeing how good God's creation is, really. 
exactly the kind of sentiment that um, parents have in relation to their children. We have eight. Um, we homeschooled them, which means my wife, mostly. My work was mostly in the evening. I read to the children a lot. We didn't have a TV. It was a very good piece of advice we had gotten from somebody. They said, there's a lot of time you suddenly have. And so we read many books out loud. And that was, that was my contribution, mainly. <laughs> a small one. But I don't know if that helps a little bit. I'm a member of Communion and Liberation. When um, I went to study in Rome in 81, in 81 I got to know Communion and Liberation in Rome. And Luigi Giussani has been, since then for me, a kind of education along these lines of recognizing what, yeah, the powers around us want to do with us and how to pursue a life um, that's not caught by it. Um, and it's interesting, in his pedagogy, the or one very important emphasis falls, and that's profoundly contrary to Luther, who thought it was sinful, the desire for happiness. That you really desire a life that's about which you can say, this is good. So um, in our culture, especially now, a lot of women you know, are having contraceptions and abortions on the grounds of some sort of you know, perceived freedom um, to, gain, to gain power in the world and things like that. I don't know if you could touch on that a little bit. Right. Most of the big moral problems that have come up have come up in the course of this pursuit of progress. After all, we're in the 20th century or the 21st century. We're back in the Middle Ages where women had to have children whenever it pleased their husbands. But now, finally, we can take these things into our own hands and we have the technical solution. The doctor supplies it. The doctor is the great authority figure because the doctor knows what will change the body in the right way, etc. The doctor is very much part of the establishment layer of the culture of scientific and technological progress. So contraception has the sanction of the new high priests and is therefore obviously when if you if you do you want to live in the Middle Ages again or should we introduce you to the twenty first century? Um, it's that kind of rhetoric that's used to browbeat you into um, and individual liberty 
and equality, which is already there in the American founding, like a bomb waiting to explode, is in fact now exploding. For example, the whole debate about um, gay marriage is already decided once you say mechanics, that is physics, whether classical physics or um, quantum physics, it makes little difference in that respect. That gives you the real picture of the world. Well, male-female is not something quantum mechanics talks about. So it's a cultural artifact. Therefore, it's unjust to accept somebody else's cultural artifact imposed on us and simply go with it. We have to overthrow these kinds of slavery, which is fundamentally what it is. You let somebody else determine your life for their purposes and not for your own good. That's, that seems to be the perception. What to do against that? It, it's very difficult uh, because for many people using contraceptives is as self-evident as using antibiotics. In fact, isn't it a kind of antibiotic? You, these little cells that are dancing around there, you take care of them just as you do of um, an infection. It's a very tough culture to live in. <laughs> uh, Hans Hans von Balthasar, who was a great theologian, uh, compares it, compares Luther's vision of the world to Dante's understanding of hell. That is, that there is no real love, no breath of the infinite, no opening up to, to happiness. Everything is uh, struggle, and, uh, yeah, it's reduced to that. But that's what Luther picked up. I have a question. Yes. Um, in, in natural anthropology or in the science of anthropology, sometimes man is defined as a toolmaker, right. tool user. So it's of the very definition of human right. to use tools or technology. Now, my understanding of that, it has to do with fossil records. Certain fossils were found and artifacts were found, and they put two and two together and said, this skeleton had... Okay. Right. But isn't it true also, this is why maybe you could expand on, is that we've, in our culture, accepted a philosophical understanding that human That's dignity it. is in the ability to use tools or technology. Right. That you actually become more human or better... And I'm not trying to leave the answer here, but I'm even thinking of an article you mentioned to me where one theologian suggested artificial reproduction is more dignified. Yeah. Speak along those lines. Yeah, an, an article in Theological Studies, the Jesuit Theological Journal, where the author argues that if you reproduce in the lab artificially, that's more human because we are fundamentally homophaba, man the smith. And it's less fun than, but more human than, 
uh, natural reproduction. But you can have the fun without the threat of babies. You produce the babies in the lab when you want. This was also the thesis of the first really radical, I became fascinated with her, American feminist, Shulamit Firestone, who wrote a book called The Dialectic of Sex. She was raised in an Orthodox Jewish household, rebelled against it, and then wrote a book in which the proposal is very simple, that the inequity, the inequality between man and woman is simply rooted in biology. And therefore, the only solution is to eliminate the biology and to make reproduction artificial. And in the late 60s, early 70s, when she wrote, she thought that computer science would soon get to the point where all the complexities of the development of an embryo in a machine could be handled. So there was a lot of optimism about um, the progress of these sciences. So that's what she proposed. And then her, her fate was kind of tragic. She, that proposal was thought to be too radical by her feminist friends. And she was kicked out and then collapsed, kind of, went from mental hospital, mental hospital, died alone. She was only discovered weeks after she died. She had been rotting. Um, in many ways, a beautiful person. And then her book has many passages in it where she talks about, we can't live without love. But she swallowed the whole technological mastery bit, the male age, the masculine age, as Bacon called it, whole, without any criticism. Um, no, very critical about relations between men and women, but completely uncritical about this whole enterprise of power over nature and the limits of knowledge that it imposes. She's fascinating. She's, she's very intense. She wrote it when she was 24. Brilliant young Jewess. That's <laughs> amazing. Oh yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, is kind of at the heart of yeah. It's it's very interesting that John Paul II, Ratzinger, and now Pope uh, this Pope Benedict and now Pope Francis, they are developing th that argument, the roots of which I just explained. That's one of the main things that they do, and so. The debate is going on. Is Pope Francis anti-modern? Well, if you identify modernity with belief 
in progress in that will solve all of our difficulties eventually in a technical way, then, then yes. But aren't we moderns? I mean, we, we live now. I don't remember my birthday being 1200 <laughs> or anything of the kind. So one, one shouldn't let oneself be browbeat by saying one is a stranger in, in modernity. But it's a huge battle. And science, natural science, has taken on the gold plate of sort of absolute authority. If science pronounces, then it's got to be that way. Um, for those of us who are going to enter into um, the society, you know, into some of one of those technological areas of society, um, what can we do? And I think that you, you touched on this a little bit with one of the previous questions, but what can we do um, you know, within ourselves, within our own lives, in our own practice, be that in engineering or medicine or whatever it is, to... Um, Love. <laughs> <laughs> Augustine put it very simply, love and then do what you want. The Beatles, all you need is love. <laughs> but I guess they meant fornication. <laughs> a little bit of fornication would take care of the problems of the world. Uh, if you do it instead of war, you'll, you'll be all set. Uh, that, that won't quite do, but that is love, seeing deeply the goodness of people caring for them even if they're nasty to you in those technical professions would have an impact. That is, when people encounter love, genuine love extended to them, it's very difficult for them to keep on their scientific pink glasses that exclude everything except the mathematical. Because they realize this is, this is it's more real. And I, and I want it. I can't live without love. Nature is deeply on our side. <laughs> which is a good thing, because it's been created by God. It's, that is, you have to consistently exclude, censor, ignore, and in argument, that's a good way to go about it, because everybody agrees that censoring something because it doesn't fit into your preconceptions is not a good thing. So if you have an argument, that's the way to go. That is to make contact with the perception of the nature of things that any person who lives in the world has unavoidably. They had a mother, they had a father. They experienced love. Censored topics in our 
culture is the, what you what contraception actually does to a woman's body. Yeah, right. And here, even on the level of science, people are willing to say, shut up. Yeah. When the abortifacient character of the contraceptive pill became clear, there was a lot of attempt to push that beneath the surface. And the, the wider implications, health implications are also pushed away. Yeah. Which is not to say that, and this is a point Pope Benedict makes in the Regensburg lecture, that many in the scientific community are really animated by a spirit of search for the truth. But they don't think about their own history. Why am I doing science the way I'm doing it? Where does it come from? And why? Who made those decisions? It's one of the most curious things that this lack of looking back into history to see where it's from. Reading Bacon is really a very good thing if you can hand a scientist friend the writings of Bacon. He should be shocked. But then they'll say, well, that's up to historians of science. That doesn't interest me. I like doing science on the latest cutting edge. Well, but there's a whole knife behind the cutting edge. And, 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 and where's, where's the knife from? Isn't part of the American issue there that scientists say, well, we want to have a science free of faith, but they, what you're saying basically is they're also doing science free of philosophy. The, the modern science, yeah. no philosophy, and, and they, they think they can get away with it by saying we're rejecting faith. Exactly. Then it's useful to, to, to point out that the initial criteria for choosing mechanics as the master discipline are will and not insight. That is, you choose that discipline because you want power, and you shove away other ways of seeing nature because it doesn't give you power, it's irrelevant and it becomes unreal. So it's not really, the, the origins are not really cognitive, but an imposition of will. That's, if, if, if somebody comes to the point of seeing that, then if there's truthfulness left in them, and there is in so many people, they'll be, they'll be bothered by it. Pope Benedict was trying to do this in many of his, his writings, and Pope Francis is doing it. The press doesn't report much on it. The press is mostly interested in, is this powerful institution called the Catholic Church finally getting out of the Middle Ages and joining us in the modern age to work constructively with us? So they focus on where he breaks with the Catholic tradition, and many conservative Catholics then get, <laughs> they get very upset about, and then much of it misreporting, and so much of what he says is just not reported. Although it would be much more interesting than 
strange thing about those who defend Catholicism that sometimes they're more myopic and yeah, wet fish swimming in the water, drinking in the water of the culture. Not that you have to be a dry fish. Dry fish doesn't work very well. <laughs> so, do we see any, obviously we see hope, but do we see any advancement towards the order of love versus this culture? Do we, you know, like physically or mathematically see that it's taking an upward? Or are we going to get worse before it gets better? Uh, humanly speaking, it seems to me, I'm just observing how the times go, that it is becoming more and more radical, that more and more public institutions, laws, etc., are aligning themselves with that way of thinking. But um, life is so unpredictable and fresh and new situations happen and if you work say in a chemical lab and you relate to the people in the lab in a really human way with, with a genuine love for them as persons they'll be touched by it. That was the thesis of, uh, and I think it's absolutely right, and it's absolutely right that women have a particular responsibility because one weakness of the male mind it's, is its capacity to be partial, that is, not to keep all factors together, but focus on this, just on this, and uh, let the rest be. I remember reading an article in the New York Times by a man who argued, unfortunately, the sexual revolution never really happened, and he described his experience. He, he was looking for a woman who would enjoy sex just as a pleasant experience, he never could. They all wanted something of him afterwards. Well, good. That's, that's marvelous. They, 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 they hung together as persons. That is, he at least imagined that he could isolate that aspect of his being. In fact, that's an illusion even for a man to think that because um, there's always more that happens. It's such a deep thing. Our sexuality is such a deep thing. It touches us at such a deep point. Always more happens in it than just the drama of encounter, the beauty of pleasure, and so on. Faith and Reason Podcasts. 
New Media for the New Evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.